6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640 the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1. We're going to explore the book of Ecclesiastes. And in many ways, it's the strangest book to address in the Bible. Is everything in the Bible true? Your first reaction is, of course, it's the Bible. Well, there are some exceptions. Most notably, this book is going to say a lot of things that isn't necessarily so. And you'll see why as we get into it. But I just want to have your caution flag flying. Many people misunderstand this book and they regard it as being extremely pessimistic. In fact, the very common title is, Is Life Really Worth Living? And we're going to be hearing from the wisest man that ever lived, other than Jesus, of course, the richest man that probably ever lived, who could indulge anything he wanted. And he comes up pretty gloomy. So what, do we, what are we doing here? Well, for one thing, the psalmist tells us to teach us to number our days so that we might apply our hearts to wisdom. And that's what we're really going to do. You see, the, one of the key phrases in this book is vanity of vanities. This book is recognized as being written by Solomon. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He loved that word vanity. He used it over 38 times in this book. And he also will write about life as he sees it under the sun. Everything under the sun is this, that, or the other. We need to recognize that he's got his blinders on. Because there's much more to the universe than what's physical under the sun. Namely, heaven and God and many other more important things. So, recognize the limitations. The word vanity, by the way, means emptiness, futility, a vapor. Um, that which vanishes quickly and leaves nothing behind. So from a human point of view, it's going to emerge that life seems futile. And it's easy for us to get pessimistic. So the first few verses, the words of the preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit hath a man of all his labor, which he taketh under the sun? Very dismal opening. And by the way, that's not only the first three verses, that's also at the close of the book. Chapter 12, verse 8, near the end. He puts the key to the book up front, and in the front door, and also in the back door. Before we go on, let's realize that Jesus rebuts this, in effect. John 10.10, 10, Jesus says, I am come that they might have life, and they might, that they might have it more abundantly. So don't let the gloomy outlook that would have seemed to be Solomon's summary dissuade us from the reality. What Solomon's going to do before he's through, he's going to focus us on uh, the real realities. We also notice what Paul's fabulous declaration is in 1 Corinthians 15, which uh, I think Paul would point out is probably the most important chapter in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 15. 
It's the resurrection chapter. Without that chapter, we have nothing. But he also have this great injunction by Paul. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So that's what we're going to try to put in contrast. I do it right up front so we don't get confused. The Jewish writer, Shalom Aleichem, once described life as a blister on top of a tumor and a boil on top of that. That's a definition you can almost feel, isn't it? The British playwright George Bernard Shaw said that life is simply a series of inspired follies. Dr. Edward Teller once said to me, he suggested that a pessimist is simply the one that has more information. <laughs> but then he also defined an optimist as the one who thinks the future is uncertain. And then as you wince with that, he looked me right in the eye and says, Chuck, it's our duty to be an optimist because then we at least try. But uh, the real question that's going to be facing us as we go through this whole book, are we going to settle for vanity or victory? And that's why I put those two verses there, both by Jesus and also by Paul, to point out life is not in vain if it's lived according to the will of God. And that's what Solomon in his own way is going to teach us in this widely misunderstood book called Ecclesiastes. Now, it's different than any other Old Testament book. It has no other parallel in the literature of the Bible. It's a philosophical discourse, but it's much more. And it makes no claim to bring man to God. It doesn't bring to man a word from God. It doesn't really, it, it, it does it in a very indirect way. The writer of this book specifically says that he includes only what he can determine by his own reason. And he limits himself to data that's under the sun. Not under heaven, under the sun. Now we do know, because it's an inspired book of the Bible, uh, that it is giving us, us the message from that God intended we should receive. But does not guarantee that all of Solomon's statements are true. So let's be on our guard here. The hermeneutics here, the interpretation is, that has to be done in a very sophisticated way. Recognize that on the one hand it's inspired literature and it's the message God wants us to see. But that doesn't mean that all the statements are true. In fact, you could actually make quite a little collection of statements in the Scripture that are not true when they're said by somebody under certain circumstances. And that's in a sense what we've got here. Solomon is going to be speaking from his own wisdom. We always need to understand that literature in the Bible needs to be understood from within the framework of its purpose and its form. For example, poetic expression isn't taken the same way as the tight reasoning of one of Paul's epistles. Very different kinds of literature. So we need to understand its purpose and its frame of reference, especially approaching this strange book. It's included in what we call the wisdom literature. The book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Job, the book of Proverbs are called wisdom literature. Because it doesn't dwell on the covenant, it doesn't dwell... Uh, on the election of Israel or redemption or prophecy in the direct sense that uh, our sacred history or the temple or any of that. It, it's, it's a different kind of thing. It's really, it focuses on man the creature, on life on earth, and the inscrutability of God in his ways. The book of Job did that too in its, in its way. It's going to emphasize that the human life and human goals are, uh, are as ends in themselves apart from God are futile and meaningless. 
But let's talk a little bit about the author. Nowhere does the author give his name, but it's pretty clear that it's intended to be Solomon. He gives descriptions that are unique to himself. There are some critics, you may find some reference books that try to cast doubt that it really was Solomon, but most of those critics, that was popular for a time, but most of those criticisms have been largely discredited. He called himself the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. He claimed to have great wealth and wisdom, and uh, uh, so forth. So uh, 12 times in Ecclesiastes, the author mentioned is the king. He makes official references to the official bureaucracy. He's obviously very frustrated with the oppressive uh, bureaucracy. Solomon, of course, had a huge organization. He maintained a large standing army, extensive government agencies, and so on. He carried on costly building projects, lived in luxury at court. And somebody, of course, had to manage all this, and, of course, somebody had to pay for it all. And Solomon solved that problem by ignoring the tribal boundaries and just setting up 12 tax districts, each managed by an overseer. The system finally became very oppressive and uh, corrupt. And after Solomon died, the people begged for relief. We'll get into that when we get into the historical books. But uh, you'll sense in Ecclesiastes this background of exploitation and oppression. Solomon started really well. He started humble, seeking God's wisdom and help. But uh, his strength was also his weakness because he was so wise. It wasn't long before he began to trust his wisdom rather than seek God's, God's counsel. As he grew older, his heart gradually turned away from God to the false gods of the many wives that he took on. He had, as you know, many, many wives, 700 wives and 300 concubines. Deuteronomy gives the king some injunctions. In Deuteronomy 17, for example, it says, The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself, nor make people return to Egypt to get more of them. He must not take many wives, nor his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. That's all in Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 20. Now David, pretty he had more than one wife, but he didn't exploit that. He, he, uh, he followed these pretty much. But Solomon really went wild. And his marriages weren't romances. They were really political maneuvers. But uh, too many of them, and they eventually brought his downfall. Because he did that to get alliances with the nations around him. He did have a policy of peace, and in that peace, in that policy, they prospered. David uh, did not have a standing army. In fact, he uh, had a policy of cutting the tendons of enemy war horses so they couldn't be used in, in battle. And he refused to build a chariot-based military establishment. But Solomon thought those were good ideas, and he did just—he didn't see the danger in each. And it was the foreign gods of these many wives that finally uh, drew him away from the living God, and uh, and of course, becoming a military superpower, which he did. Uh, he uh, started to trust in that rather than God. So Alexander White said, "Interesting." He says that. Uh, the secret worm was gnawing all the time in the royal staff upon which Solomon leaned. I thought that's very colorful, but it describes the situation uh, really well. Well, King Solomon's later years were miserable and because God had removed his hand of blessing. And we're going to see evidences of that here. God maintains Solomon's throne because of his promise, not to Solomon, but to David. It's for David's sake that God even allows him to continue. In fact, in 1 Kings 11... Verse 9 to 13, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, 
For the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son, yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. That's God's word as a result of this. So, and of course, at Solomon's death, the, the kingdom divided, and the house of David was really left with Judah and Benjamin as a, an attachment. There's a very interesting thing before we go on I'd like to contrast so we, as we get perspective on Solomon. If you and I were to write David's report card, we'd probably be very critical. He was an adulterer, he was a murderer, so forth. And indeed he was, but he was repentant. God's report card couldn't have been better. He said of David, there's a man after my own heart. So David we'd be critical of, God is extolling him above all others. Solomon's the opposite way around. You see, Solomon, we think, is a pretty good guy. Wisest man in the kingdom. Under his policies of peace, the, the, the nation prospered. We think he's a pretty great guy. It's interesting that in the New Testament, all the allusions to Solomon are rather derisive. He's met a standard, but such this is better. In other words, so-and-so is even wiser than Solomon. Or uh, the lilies of the valleys, consider their raid and all their glory. Even Solomon wasn't raid. Like, in other words, he's used as a standard, but it's always one that's been exceeded in, in the rhetoric. Solomon did write Proverbs, probably early in his career, very notable book, of course. And the Song of Solomon is a romance. Those were written during the years he walked faithfully with God. As an evidence of that, think of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, he says. And try, lean not unto your own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. That's Solomon, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. So he wrote them from the point of view of a wise teacher. Solomon wrote... Song of Songs, from the point of view of a uh, royal lover. But when he wrote Ecclesiastes, which is at the end of his life, he calls himself the preacher, or actually the, the caller to assembly. It, uh, and really records the painful lessons of his life. And uh, there is no record in the scripture that Solomon ever repented and really turned back to the Lord. That doesn't mean he didn't. From some of the nuances in Ecclesiastes, it's my personal suspicion that he did. But it's not explicit in the Scripture, and we'll sort that through. Well, uh, getting back to this then, the title of the book is the Koheleth is in the, in the Hebrew, which really means the caller of an assembly, or it could be a teacher or a preacher. The Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, when it was translated into Greek, that word is translated ecclesia, which means assembly. And it's from the Latin derivation of the Septuagint we get the title we use, Ecclesiastes, from Ecclesia, which is the Greek form of the Hebrew coalesce. But anyone where did that weird name come from? That's basically the story. And the word coalesce, by the way, carries with it the idea of debating. Yes, he's a teacher, but from the point of dialectic, from the point of view of, of debating. So, so we're going to see a lot of statements he's going to make that really need to be challenged. The book as a whole, just as we're starting a new book, let's jump into it. It's The first couple of chapters is Solomon's quest by personal experiment, his search for wisdom and pleasure. The next few chapters are his quest by general observation. He's going to talk about the ills and enigmas of human society. The next quest will be by practical morality. Material things cannot satisfy the soul. We hear the conclusion, if anybody ought to know, Solomon should, because he had anything he wanted. They discovered they do not satisfy. Boy, if we could only learn that. 
And, the que- and then the question is reviewed and concluded at the end, verses 9 through 12. And his conclusion is, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, except it's not really... Uh, he's going to talk about ten vanities. He's talk about human wisdom, human labor, uh, human purpose. I won't develop all these here. We'll develop it as we go through the book. Human avarice, human fame, human insanity, uh, coveting, frivolity, and awards. And uh, we'll develop these themes as we go, but that's just a for a glimpse of what we're going to get into. The final significance, though, let's pay attention to Solomon's final significance. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That's Solomon speaking. From even just the limitations of human wisdom, he concludes that. For God shall bring every work into judgment, and every, with every secret thing, whether it be good, whether it be evil. That's Ecclesiastes 12 near the end. So strangely enough, this book, while it has a very gloomy aspect, it is heading in it to an orderly way, and we'll see that. It's the opposite of pessimism. In Romans, for the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Jesus died not just for you and I, because we're not the only things redeemed. The earth is redeemed, and so is, and there's a new heaven and a new earth. So there's much more going on than you and I probably have any capacity to imagine. Now, is this book relevant today? That sounds, gee, that's great, great, Chuck. It's a quaint book, part of the biblical literature, fine. What about today? Well, let's take a look at what Solomon saw, what he's responding to. Injustice to the poor, chapter 4. Crooked politics. Incompetent leaders. Have you ever met any of these? Guilty people who are allowed to commit more crime? You know, the guilty, the innocent get convicted and the guilty go free? Materialism, and of course a desire for the so-called good old days. These are some of the things that Solomon saw, and it becomes pretty obvious as you see his perspective that we're going to get the benefit of his perspective as a guy that God gave wisdom to, and one who had all the resources you and I could imagine, more than you and I could even imagine. The words of the preacher, the son of David, the king of Jerusalem. It says in Jerusalem, by the way, that's opposed, by the way, to David who reigned in both Hebron and Jerusalem. And only Solomon reigned only in Jerusalem. And so the king of Israel and Jerusalem implies that he reigned over Israel and Judah combined. David of Hebron reigned over only over Judah, and then not until he settled in Jerusalem, both over Israel and Judah. Anyway, what is it? Vanity of vanities, saith the preachers, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. We'll go through some of the vocabulary here in a minute, but uh, we're going to, in effect, be in the, the, this word, havel, or vanity, is used five times just in this one verse. It means meaningless. And four of those times, it's a, it's a double repetition of the Hebrew superlative construction, which means the way the, the uh, King James says vanity of vanities, the New International Version says meaningless, meaningless, and utterly meaningless to get the, try to capture that Hebrew intensive there. And then we're going to have a, a poem which is going to talk about the ceaseless rounds of the generations of the nature and, and then a poetical conclusion. But, and what profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? The word profit here, or gain, uh, is, uh, refers to what's left over. Uh, uh, and it's metaphorically, in other words, what's advantageous or what's a benefit? And uh, some things uh, uh, have advantages over others, obviously. And the phrase under the sun is a very key phrase. It's used 29 times throughout this book. 
And so the emphasis here is on the what's right in front of us, what's tangible. It doesn't look beyond that. And by not looking beyond that, it gets fairly, it gets pretty, it gets pretty dismal. I think it'll be useful to go over some of these words because they carry the, the whole flavor. I talked about koaleth and ecclesia. Hevel is the word for um, vanity. This word yethron is profit or surplus or gain. Another word that you'll see is amal, which is like wearisome. It means to toil to the point of exhaustion and yet experience little or no fulfillment in your work. We're going to see that word. Out of 11 different choices, that word is used a great deal. And also the word ra, which is translated evil in the King James, but it can mean, it simply means grievous, adversity, misery, that sort of thing. A couple of other things I didn't make a slide on, but I want to bring out is um, whenever Solomon uses the word for God, he uses the word for Elohim 40 different times. He never uses Jehovah or Yahweh or uh, the Tetragrammaton. Um, the Elohim speaks of the mighty God, the creator God, uh, and who exercises sovereign power. The Jehovah phrase is one that speaks of the covenant relationship and the, and the, the, the God of the promise. And that's when you speak of the... You'll notice when you go through your Bible... Which word is used, typically in the translations, the word uh, Jehovah is Lord, all caps, to tip you off. That's the tetragrammaton. The, and it re, it's referring to God in his special relationship with the, in the covenant. And uh, as opposed to Elohim, who as the, God the Creator. It's God the Creator. It's a more distant term that uh, Solomon uses all through here. One of the things that... Uh, Solomon's going to deal with is the cycles of life. You know, whenever you and I use the term life cycle or the wheel of fortune or things have come full circle, we're joining Solomon and a host of other writers that tend to uh, see uh, a cyclical view of life and nature and so forth. Solomon's going to ponder these questions and look at life under the sun. He came to, he'll come to three bleak conclusions just tentatively up front that nothing has changed, nothing is new, and nothing is understood. He's going to take a look of what you might call the wheel of nature. He's going to talk about the earth, the sun, the wind, and the water. This almost suggests the classic elements of Aristotle, if you, if you recall, earth, air, fire, and water. One generation passes away, another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. See, nature doesn't change. The earth continues. Man comes and goes is, is, is the emphasis he's making here. He, he's saying that uh, the sun arises, the sun goeth down, and hastens the place where he arose. Solomon's perspective here is that things go on independent of man. What he's ignoring is it doesn't go on independent of God. Uh, God held the sun in place for Joshua, Joshua uh, chapter 10, you may recall. Uh, he moved the sun back as a sign to Hezekiah. We'll see that in uh, Isaiah. He opened the Red Sea and the Jordan River on two different occasions to let the nation go through. He turned off the rain for Elijah for three and a half years. Calm the wind and for the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. See, God does intervene in probably far more than we have any idea as he intervene. Solomon is indulging in a worldview that a scientist or a cosmologist would call a closed system. It's closed within itself. And the error there is that it's not a closed system. God is outside that and intervenes into it. So it's a, it's a fallacy in logic. See, you and I can... Look at it differently because we can sing a song, This is my Father's world. And uh, we have not only a creator God, we have a, a, that transcends his creation, but he also has 
uh, in a number of times, entered his creation, perhaps most dramatically in the person of Jesus Christ. So we have a, a you know, much more enlightened view here. Now it says, one generation pass away, another generation cometh. The, the Hebrew uses participles here, which means one generation is always passing off the scene. Another is always arriving. That's really what the grammar implies. Man is just born to get caught up in the tide and then passes away. But the earth, in contrast, abides forever. And by the way, that's not true. The earth's going to have its end too. The laws of thermodynamics, it's winding down. You got people ringing your doorbell trying to save the planet. Tell them, you can't save the planet. You read ahead and you discover it's going to, it's going to burn, you know. So, but man who is from the earth is short-lived, dies, and, uh, but the material from which he was fashioned remains. That's really the, the view that Solomon's preoccupied with here. The sun also riseth, the sun goeth down, and hasteth to the place where he arose. We say, as sure as night follows the day, as, a, as Shakespeare would say it. But uh, you see, as far as the heavens are concerned, one day is just like another, the heaven remains the same, is the, is the view here. Then he goes on, he says, The wind goeth towards the south, turneth about to the north, it whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. Now, you and I would read that poetically and just keep going on. Okay, sure it does. Obviously it does. Let, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's only in the relatively recent years that we have a science of meteorology where we've discovered that the wind has circuits. It's not totally random. It has circuits. And it's interesting, but even, even more to the point here, verse 7, all rivers run into the sea, and yet the sea is not full. You ever wonder about that? Every map has rivers, you know, going from the mountains, melted snow or rain or whatever, and goes down in the sea. But the sea doesn't get fuller. You ever wonder about that? Solomon, you see, under the place where the rivers come thither, they return again. Now, this really fascinated me for lots of reasons. Um, because <laughs> from ancient times... Till about 1400 A.D., the concept of the hydrological cycle was speculated on. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your prayerful continued support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.